0: Today on Come Pray With Me, I will be interviewing Rabbi Jody Gordon of Hevra of Southern Berkshire in Massachusetts. She will be teaching us about the history of Reformed Judaism and the significance of the Hebrew language to Jewish people. She also has her own podcast where she discusses religious topics, just like me. Welcome to the show, Rabbi Gordon. It's a pleasure to meet you. Thanks so much for having me, Sarah. You're welcome. So, I noticed that uh, you practice Reform Judaism. So, what makes that distinct from the other sects of Judaism?
1: It's a great question. So, um, as we are fond of saying, reform is a verb. So, Reform Judaism was founded in the late 19th century. Uh, the seeds of Reform Judaism were planted in Germany and really. Came to sort of full blossom here in America as um, more and more Western European Jews made their way to this country. And so Reform Judaism has always been about um, finding a way to live a rich and meaningful Jewish life that also takes into account the realities of modernity, of science, of Western education. And so when Reform Judaism first began, it was fairly radical. I mean, within the context of, of the Jewish community thus far. Um, and today, Reform Judaism is the largest sect here in North America. There are, there's a wide range of what we might mean by being a Reform Jew, but some of the key components that differentiate us from conservative Judaism, from Reconstructionist Judaism, from the various um, communities that fall under the larger umbrella of orthodoxy is um, some of it might look cosmetic, but there are deeply meaningful differences. One is gender equality, which has been a value for a long time. The Reform Movement was the first to ordain women as rabbis beginning in 1972. The first to affirm, celebrate, welcome LGBTQIA plus individuals into our communities and ordain them as rabbis and cantors in our institutions of education. And to affirm interfaith partnerships, to affirm patriarchal descent. Um, So traditionally, um, a person is considered Jewish if their mother is Jewish. And in the 1970s, Rabbi Alexander Schindler of blessed memory, um, who was the president of our overseeing body, which was at the time called the Union of American Hebrew Congregations. Um, He passed a resolution and made it a a major component of his leadership to affirm uh, those people whose fathers are Jewish and who lead a Jewish life as full and complete members of the Jewish faith. So those are a few of the The key differences, right? Like, so if somebody on the street says, Oh, like that person's a Reformed Jew, as opposed to identifying as one of the other sects, those are some of the major um, identifiers that really make Reformed Judaism unique.
0: I think those are some very fascinating historical aspects. And I know that a lot of reform Jews played an important part in the Weimar Republic in Germany, since a lot of the most influential and well-known artists and writers and philosophers and scientists were all a part of the Jewish community, which is what a lot of people don't realize or don't talk about since people might bring it up in a history class like oh this artist did this painting or we're going to read Kafka but they don't acknowledge any of the um, Jewish culture behind it or that inspires a lot of these stories.
1: Yeah you know what the part that you, the what you just said is interesting for a lot of reasons and I think one thing that people may know about depending on like how much of a history buff you are is that in the in the jewish community like for me as a rabbi when i talk about um the modern era like what do i mean by um modernity is we mean post-enlightenment so we mean late 1700s um because what's the major thing that happens in the late 1700s that's when jews gain citizenship and suddenly um you know jews become members of the nation state which we know as france they become you know to totally use the uh, wrong, <laughs> they didn't have passports then, right? But as soon as let's we'll use the metaphor, as soon as Jews had a passport that said I'm a French citizen, suddenly Jews had two ident two identities, um, possibly two senses of authority to which they might answer. Prior to that, when Jews didn't hold citizenship um, separately, as uh, separately from being Jewish. Um, throughout Europe, right, who was their main authority were the rabbis, right? They would go to the Beit Din, the, the Jewish court of law, and that's where their, their lives were decided and where their lives were rooted. And really, I think the the major piece of enlightenment that, that moves us sort of inexorably toward Reform Judaism is that as soon as Jews are a part of the world around them in a different way, the world opens up. Suddenly, it's not just, oh, you know, my... Jewish son will go to a yeshiva, right, to a traditional Jewish house of study, and he'll only study Torah, and he will grow up, and he will study Torah, and his children will study Torah. Suddenly, it's, right, my son might go to the university in Berlin, and might study philosophy, and might become a writer, and might wind up sitting in a cafe with Kafka, if he's lucky. Um, so there's, you know, there is a sense of the world opens up to the Jewish people in a different way, post-enlightenment. And I think so much of the art and culture and literature and science and philosophy that you just said, you know, so many of those people were Jews, is part of that sort of the the moment where the instinct and the possibility came together for them to be able to do that.
0: I think that is a really unique history. And thank you for explaining a little bit of that more to the audience, since a lot of people don't really know a whole lot about Jewish history around the world, and uh, recently my school, Washington College, had a meeting online for the History Society where we talked about the history of Jewish people in America and how it wasn't just a bunch of people coming over to Ellis Island. There were people that had lived there and had communities hundreds and hundreds of years ago, and they had different cultures and ideas that they brought with them, but it was only until later that they really started to be included in society, since for quite a while there was a lot of ostracization, but they always persisted and they formed their own minions and um, just really created these family units together.
1: If you or your listeners are ever interested in a amazing deep dive into American Jewish history, um, the book, which I believe is literally called like, it's either called like American Jewish history or the American Jewish experience, but it's written by Jonathan Sarna. Um, and it's an, it's an incredible volume to read if you are interested in history, particularly if you have um, an affection for New York City, right? Because so much of the American Jewish story does um, sort of come through New York, although um, you know, Jews, when they immigrated to America, they came in through Galveston, they came in um, and, and settled all over the country. But so much of the story does, you know, happen around New York City. And so American Jewish History or American Jewish Experience by Jonathan Sarna, it's a great book.
0: Thank you for that. And you can still find a lot of these communities when you go into New York. Like I actually was um, visiting the Metropolitan and I was going around to different parts and I found uh, one part that had like everything in Yiddish, like signs at Yiddish stores and people were just talking Yiddish to each other. And it was a really unique and sort of surreal experience. And it's not something you're gonna see in that many other parts of the country, but there it just melds in with everything else. So yeah, I also noticed um, that you have a Hebrew language program that you teach. Could you tell us a little bit more about this and then the significance of Hebrew in Judaism?
1: Sure. So Hebrew is you know considered the language of the Jewish people. It's the language in which we pray. It's the language in which many of our most sacred texts are written. Um, Hebrew is interesting. So for, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years, longer than that, it was considered a dead language, right? Because it was only the language of prayer. It wasn't spoken. And so there's a couple of things that we talk that we that we should be talking about when we talk about Hebrew and Jewish life today, because the formation of the modern state of Israel, uh, re-enliven the Hebrew language in a way that it wouldn't have, I don't believe it would have without without that happening, right? So so on the one hand, and I'm happy to talk about the way we teach Hebrew in our synagogue, um, but Hebrew is this interesting thing because I think it's it's both the language of prayer, and that's what we teach our young people. We teach them the Hebrew alphabet, which is called an Aleph-Bet, um, so you can hear the similarities there. But The first letters of the Hebrew alphabet are Aleph and Bet, and... Um, and we teach students how to be able to read and decode so that they can navigate the prayer book, right? So that they have the tools at hand to be able to come into the synagogue on a Friday night or a Saturday morning or on a Jewish holiday and to feel comfortable and at ease and like they know what they're doing, right? So we teach them Hebrew as a tool for teaching them how to pray. And they're not the same thing, right? Being able to read a prayer in Hebrew is not the same as actually praying. And in our, our best work, we're able to do both. Um, you know, for our students, they get to study Hebrew once a week for 90 minutes. And so for some students, it will come easily and they'll pick it right up. And for students who just aren't language people, you know, it's a struggle. So there's on the one hand, like the way that American Jews learn how to read Hebrew in what we call Hebrew school for the purpose of being able to do so in the synagogue. And then um, I think it's, I love the Hebrew language, Um, I've lived in Israel a number of different times for various lengths of time and um, to be able to speak Hebrew I think is this other amazing um, sort of identity building experience of being a Jewish person in the modern world right to be able to travel anywhere in the world um, and you know hear somebody you know out of the back of your ear speaking Hebrew in a cafe somewhere in Thailand and suddenly you're able to identify each other as like wow like You know, not to make the assumption necessarily that they're Jewish because there are many non-Jews in Israel, but to say like, wow, you speak Hebrew, like, are you Israeli or are you Jewish? Like, do we have this thing in common now where we have this quite literally shared language?
0: That's very cool. It's a very uh, unique experience and I love all the different ways we can connect and bond over language and you have uh, quite a few other educational programs available. So could you tell us a little bit more about those and how uh, if someone was interested in them, how they would
1: join them? Sure. So um, I serve as one of the rabbis at the uh, a fairly large, for our area, um, congregation in the western part of Massachusetts. We are a reformed congregation, we identify as such, and we live in a place where we're about two and a half hours north of New York City, We're two hours west of Boston, and um, unlike in more urban or suburban places you know there's not a synagogue in every neighborhood so we're really a regional synagogue insofar as we have members of our congregation who live anywhere up to an hour away in all different directions right so we have members who live in massachusetts we live members who live over the border in new york state who live over the border in connecticut um so we really are a, a regional community and so we have for the past 45 years at this point um considered ourselves really a place for for jewish living a laboratory for experimenting with spirituality Um, in terms of our educational programs at this moment during covid when everything is on zoom we're teaching we have three different hebrew courses going right now for adults we have a weekly um we call it religious school but a weekly educational experience for kids who are in kindergarten through 12th grade and um, we have a special high school program for ninth through twelfth graders altogether, which, in normal times, would also include travel as part of that experience, right? Going to different places around the world, including Israel, Amsterdam, Prague, to encounter the Jewish story as it has existed historically and today in different places. So you know when I think about our education programs at large, you know, on the one hand, there are some that are quite obviously for somebody who maybe already considers themselves Jewish, because maybe there's something about it that either by by either th- there's something going to be there's going to be something exclusive about it, either for the person or for the community. Right. So let's say a non-Jewish person is interested in our classes and they see that we're teaching about um, how to chant Torah. Right. There's like a few levels missing before they would. Be in a position to learn how to chant Torah. So it's not that they're excluded because they're not Jewish, but there are different um, layers and levels of skills and experiences that lead us to offer various things. You know, our community is a Jewish community, which includes people of many faiths. I think is a nice way to say it. So many, many, many of our members didn't grow up Jewish. Um, They are married to people who are Jewish or they themselves as an adult decided and chose Judaism and they converted to become a part of the Jewish people. And so we don't when we when we think about like who are our programs for and they really are for everyone because, you know, the Jewish path for most people is not linear. Um, Fewer and fewer people in America today, and if you are a student of religion, I'm sure you're well aware of all of those great statistics that people like Robert Putnam have written about, right, that we are becoming a less and less religious country and fewer and fewer people are choosing to opt into formal religious communities. And so when someone calls us and says, hey, I see you do a weekly Torah study, I understand that Torah is the Old Testament, I'm not Jewish, but I'm interested, can I come? The answer is, of course. Um, Our programs for our young people do really um, center themselves on something that as the director of education, I this is sort of like this is my motto, my theme, my goal, which is that I want to help our Jewish students and their families figure out how to live joyously on Jewish time, right? That we are here in this particular situation. We are Americans living in Massachusetts, and it is not a a deeply Jewish community around us, right? We're not living in New York City. We're not living in Tel Aviv. We're living in a place where the the larger culture around us is by and large not Jewish. And so if we can help our students and our families develop that sort of internal rhythm that makes them sort of know in their guts that when Friday afternoon rolls around, that means it's almost Shabbat, right? And then when it's September and the leaves start changing, that like it's almost time for Rosh Hashanah, Right. And that as the winter comes and the stores fill with um, amazing things for Christmas, that it's also time for Hanukkah. Right. So that we're, we're trying to really implant within our students and our families a sense of Jewish time um, and a sense of, of how much joy there is to be found when you live sort of on Jewish time.
0: That's a very good point. And a lot of people are somewhat familiar with Shabbat. They're just like, oh, that's a time of rest, but it's quite a bit more than that. Could you uh, share that with our audience?
1: Sure. I love Shabbat. Shabbat's the best. And it's almost Shabbat, which is a great thing as we record. Um, so Shabbat, which is what we call our Sabbath, begins at sundown on Friday evening and ends at sundown on Saturday evening. Um Shabbat is one of the very first things that we receive from Torah, right? In the very, very beginning in the book of Genesis, we learn that God creates the world in seven de- in six days, but on the seventh day, God rests, right? And God calls that day holy. And that's what we say, oh, so that is Shabbat. And I always love to say, you know, we all think we're so busy. I often think I'm so busy. Everyone thinks they're so busy, right? Um but if God can take a rest, so can we. <laughs> um, so what does Shabbat really look like? Uh, it. I'm happy to sort of weave back and forth between like what Shabbat looks like in a theoretical sense and how we actually do it here in my synagogue and our congregation. But Shabbat is meant to be a time of rest, of beauty, a time that's set apart. I had an amazing mentor who always said, I don't care what you do on Shabbat, but just make it different than Tuesday. Um, you know, so... Traditionally, right, it would be this time of, of making sure that the house is clean and you have a really beautiful and elaborate meal cooked and the table is set and everyone who's joining for dinner, you know, puts on nicer clothing and you make blessings before the meal, right? You light candles and you say a blessing. You drink a glass, you make a blessing and you drink a glass of wine. You make a blessing and you eat challah. And then... There's, you know, there's sort of the, on the one hand, the, the, what I would consider sort of stricter traditions on the sort of thou shalt nots of Shabbat, like the more um, lowercase c conservative ways of thinking about Shabbat, right? So there are many people who don't drive, don't spend money, don't use electricity, won't use their phones, things like that on Shabbat. Um, you're meant to pray on Shabbat, and so most synagogues, you know, ours included, will gather on Friday evenings for what we call Kabbalat Shabbat, which literally means receiving Shabbat. So it's the Friday night service, and it's um, built around psalms and song and prayer, and there's usually a teaching from the rabbi, which we would call either a sermon or a Devar Torah, which means a word of Torah, and it's really meant to be an expansive time, and I, you know, I think about it now especially, like all the more so in in COVID 2021 living, um, of how can I make it different and special, right? I might not be able to get my act together for a totally clean house and a three course meal with a tablecloth, right? But if I can make it so that me and my kids and my husband can all sit down at the same time and light candles and drink wine and have challah, and that'll make it different than Tuesday. And that will make a sense for our family, of a separation. And so much about Shabbat is about separation, right? About making it separate from the rest of the week. So on Saturday morning, also you're meant to Go to services and study Torah and hear Torah chanted and it's beautiful. And then, you know, there are all sorts of beautiful ways in which you can imagine. And many people do do Shabbat this way, right? That you have a long and leisurely Shabbat lunch. And then you take a nap and you sit and you read and maybe you go for a walk. And at sundown, when Shabbat is over, you don't just say like, okay, Shabbat's over. Like, let's turn on the TV or, you know, go out to the movies or to a restaurant. But you have another one more short a ceremony called Havdalah which literally means to separate and the central blessing of Havdalah um, what it means from the Hebrew to the English is that you you bless the difference between the holy and the ordinary so even as like you've just had this amazing 24-hour experience of you know sort of sec- sacred and separate time you say a blessing before you go back into the rest of your week
0: That's really nice. It sounds like a very soothing time, but also a great time to reconnect with your loved ones, even though it is still a time of separation, mm-hmm. especially now with COVID and everything. And uh, a lot of people also use Shabbat as a time to read over or reflect on sacred texts. So what are some of the sacred texts in Judaism and what role do they play
1: in the faith? Sure. So. Torah is at the center of our lives and of our of our Jewish calendar, of our holiday and Shabbat celebrations. When we say Torah, what we mean is the five books of Moses, what people from other faiths will call the Old Testament, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy. And we read them each and every, we read the Torah every week and we read it in a cycle. And the cycle begins in the fall at the holiday that we call Simchat Torah, which means rejoicing in Torah. And that's when we quite literally like roll the scroll back and we start reading it again at the very beginning at Genesis. And each Shabbat you read the next portion. So this coming Shabbat that we are about to begin as we record this together, Sarah, we're actually gonna start the book of Exodus. This weekend is the the first portion in the book of Exodus. So that'll be our core text for this Shabbat. And additionally, on Shabbat, we also read what we call the Haftorah, which some people um, mistakenly think means, oh, like the Haftorah, but it's not. Um, So the rabbis, and when I say the rabbis, I mostly mean men with very long gray beards from hundreds and hundreds of years ago who decided, um, but they were good. They were good rabbis. They, you know, they said, look at this amazing tradition we have. We have all of this incredible writing. We have the prophets, right? We have the, we have the book of Isaiah, the book of Ezekiel and Amos and look, in all the writings, there's the book of the Kings. There's the book of Samuel. Like how can we not use this more? How can we be sitting here and not read these more regularly? And so the Haftorah is actually an additional, liturgical selection from either the prophets or the books of writings that we also read and study on Shabbat. So you get a Torah portion, which goes, you know, in sort of a linear order, and this week will begin Exodus. And then you have the Haftarah, Torah, which was set in place by the rabbis and is a sort of a selected reading that goes with the Torah reading for the week. And sometimes you can draw a really clear and obvious connection between the Torah and Haftorah, and there are other weeks where you like look at it and sort of scratch your head and you're like, well, I, I'm i not sure why this is the Haftorah for the week, but it's a lovely story. So um, those are two of the main um, ways in which I think we really root ourselves as a community to our sacred texts.
0: So uh, earlier I mentioned a uh, minyan, but I forgot to explain what it was or is, so could you explain that to our audience?
1: Sure. I, I love the word minion and I love explaining it as the Jewish commitment to community. So literally a minion refers to a quorum, right? The minimum number of people that are required to have together in order for certain ritual and liturgical things to happen. Um, so what does that actually mean? So traditionally, it's ten men. Um, as I often say to anyone who asks me if it's okay if their minion doesn't have ten men, I said, "Well, by virtue of the fact that you're working with a rabbi who's a woman, I think yes." So yes, we we absolutely count all adults over the age of thirteen as part of our minion, um, and. And and, when I, and I started by saying, you know, I like to sort of joke that it's the Jewish commitment to community. But really what it means is that there are certain experiences that you are not meant to do alone. And there are certain prayers that you're not meant to say alone. And so a minion is required for certain prayers to be said, for certain rituals to happen. Um, so, for instance, let's say... Uh, we're talking about somebody who is in mourning, right? Somebody who has just lost a loved one. And so the tradition is that for the first seven days after the burial of their loved one, they are sitting a period that we call Shiva. So Shiva comes from the Hebrew number for seven. It means they're sitting for seven days, right? They stay home. They are taken care of by their community. They don't have to go to work. They're not going about normal business. And every night, right, there would be what, you know, what we would call colloquially a minion, right? In order that the mourner can say Kaddish. Kaddish, which is the memorial prayer that you say for the dead, right? So the someone who is in mourning is the one who is obligated to say Kaddish. They can't say it alone. They need a minion. So for me, that reflects this Jewish commitment to community, right? That no fewer than 10 adults should be there as witness and support as somebody who is in mourning says Kaddish. So there's a, I think, a a good and and easy to understand example of how the idea actually works in practical everyday jewish life
0: i really like that and i like that strong emphasis on community and that there's prayers that are better said in a group and i think that's very fitting because when you're mourning for a little while you might want time to yourself to reflect over what's been going on but then after a while, you know, it really helps to know you have a bunch of people on your side that have your back and care about you. So I really admire that. And I think that's something we could all learn from.
1: You know, I have heard lots of people say, you know, if someone, if someone were to ask me, like, what do you think Jews do really well? I am I think we do death really well. And I've had lots of, you know, folks from other faith backgrounds say to me, I really like how, you know, Jewish people handle death. Because here's the, to reflect on what you just said, um, our tradition knows that mourning doesn't happen in one day or in one week and that it doesn't end after a certain period of time. So there are there are marks along the way that give us a structure and sort of tell us what we're supposed to do. So for the first seven days, you're not supposed to be alone. And the idea there is um, that you're not ready to be alone with your thoughts, that you're not ready to be alone in an empty house, let's say that you're not ready to be left alone to have to look in the fridge and figure out what's for dinner. And so for the first seven days, your community takes care of all of that for you. And then after seven days, when Shiva ends, there's a ritual that you're meant to get up, like literally get up from Shiva is how we talk about it, and go for a walk around the block. And that walk is meant to be this sort of spiritual metaphor for saying like, okay, it's time for me to go back to some of the normal business of living. But the tradition still says, like, no, but you're not really ready to, to you know, to just go back to normal. And so after Shiva, you're still in what is called Shloshim, which is the first 30 days. And there are still then sort of restrictions and support on what is to be expected of a mourner during the first 30 days. And after Shloshim is over, right, and you move then into what happens after the first month, then the tradition says, okay, you can, like, go back to your business more or less is normal, but let's be aware that you're in the first year of mourning. And so you should say Kaddish every day, right? Again, so that means once a day, if you're doing this sort of by the books, once a day for the first year after a loss, you shouldn't be alone, right? If you're going to fulfill the obligation and you're going to do it in community, at least once a day, you're not alone. And then finally, after a year is then the suggestion that maybe it's time to go back to the cemetery and to put a stone down and to dedicate it. And to mark that year in this way that's meaningful. And I think, you know, all of those sort of baby steps along the way really speak to, I think, an understanding of how the human spirit works, right? And of what we need from other people.
0: I think that's very important. And Jewish people have a very healthy relationship with death. Like, they still love life and love living and love the people around them. and you know, they love being with them, but at the same time, they have an acceptance towards death as being a natural part in being alive. And also this notion that it's not exactly like someone's just, you know, gone forever. You're never going to see them again. They're still with you just in a different way. Mm Yeah. Yeah. So I noticed on um, your website that your motto is uh, Piku Efesh Could you explain what that means?
1: Sure. Um, so I'm guessing you're looking at the Hebra website. Hebra is the synagogue where I serve for your listeners. And so it's not exactly a motto, but it's definitely one of our highest values. And it's one of our highest values more than ever in this particular year in which we're all experiencing life during a pandemic. So pikuach nefesh means saving a life. And the value of pikuach nefesh is sort of the, it's the value that cancels out all the other rules. So I'll use an example to sort of make the point. So let's say you are somebody who considers yourself traditionally observant, right? And on Shabbat, you wouldn't drive, you wouldn't pick up the phone, right? You wouldn't use electricity. There's all sorts of different restrictions in place. And let's say um, you start feeling really sick, really, really sick, terribly, terribly ill, or like, you know, you have an accident, right? You cut yourself in your home. Jewish tradition tells you that saving your life is more important than the laws of Shabbat. And it's time to either get on the phone and call an ambulance or get in the car and go to the hospital, right? That we would never say, oh, but I was following this other law, which prevented me from saving a life. And so, for so the reason why you saw that on our website right now is that um, our synagogue, like so many others, has been closed. Um, our our building has been physically closed to the public since March uh, 9th, eighth, tenth, something, eleventh, right? Since that that second week in March, and we have not gathered in person now in close to a year. We have celebrated Shabbat each and every week on Zoom. We have. Uh, buried people at gravesides with many of their loved ones watching on Facetime. We have sat shiva with folks on Zoom. We have celebrated Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur and Simchat Torah and Hanukkah all on the computer. And that is because, even though as a Jewish community, it is of highest value to us to celebrate the Jewish holidays in community, to mourn with others in community. The value of saving a life. Supersedes all of them, and so for us right now that's the that is the main um, guiding force in all of our decisions to remain closed to, to all in-person gatherings.
0: I think that's very important and I'm sure that all of the people at the congregation really appreciate the support that you provide during these difficult times. I mean, obviously it's not the same as being there in person, but I think technology has really helped people reconnect with each other in ways that weren't possible before. Like, I'm able to talk to you right now over this Zoom call just because of technology, so.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, I think, um, You know, we're always trying to wrestle a blessing from our biggest challenges. I think of that as like a real Jewish value for me, a real spiritual value. And I think about with everything that we have lost and we've lost a lot, right? All of us have. We've lost routines and things we were looking forward to. Some of us have lost family members and people we've loved actually to the disease. All of those things. There are some things we have gained, which I think are an important lesson for us to remember when we start to go back to whatever the next whatever the next phase of normal might look like right which is that technology has made it so that you know somebody in the congregation died earlier in the fall and there were people who were able to join us for shiva from holland from california from florida right that were we not on zoom and we were sitting shiva in that person's home i'm you know of course their friends and family from holland and california and florida would have reached out to them but you know in this digital sacred space, we are able to include more people, which is, I think, it's a small blessing um, in the face of a lot of loss, but I think
0: it's an important one. Absolutely, absolutely. Did you have any prayers you would like to share with our audience today?
1: Um, You know, it's almost Shabbat. And so in just a few hours, when we welcome Shabbat, we're going to, we will sing these words. that we, that we sing each and every week. And, and they're, they're both a prayer and a story. So maybe that's what I'll leave you with. And they're the words of Shalom Alechem. So Shalom, which you probably have heard, right, is the Hebrew word that means hello, goodbye, or peace. And Alechem means to you. As a quick side note, if you have any, um, real language buffs listening to your show, hopefully people then would hear the, the, Similarity between Shalom Alechem and Salam Aleikum, right? So that the the relationship between Arabic and Hebrew is always um, always so interesting to me, and I always feel so interested when I'm able to find the the commonalities. Anyway, so Shalom Alechem is this prayer that we sing on Friday night, and it and it's a prayer that we sing Shalom Alechem. So hello to you, but we don't mean like hello to you, Sarah, and hello to you, Mrs. Goldberg, and hello to you, Uncle Morty. We mean hello to you. Malache Hasharet, the ministering angels. So there's this idea that on Shabbat, there are these angels that join us and they walk home with us from our synagogues to our home, right, if we were, you know, for some of us at, at this point, walking from our dining room table to our kitchen table, but they're the angels that accompany us on Shabbat. And there are three things we say in this prayer. We say, Boachem <laughs> Shalom," which means please come in peace. We say, Barhuni <laughs> Shalom." please bless me with peace. And then we say, and now go in peace. And so I would say for all of your listeners and for you, Sarah, because you are a really wonderful host. You're really quite good at this. My wish and prayer for all of you this week is that you will come in peace to wherever you are going, that when you arrive there, you will be blessed with peace and that when it's time to move on, that you will go in peace and in wholeness.
0: Thank you so much. I really appreciate your kind words and you being here on the show today. Did you have anything else you would like to discuss?
1: No, I'm so glad to meet you and to know that you're doing this kind of work. And I hope you'll send me the link for the episode once it's up so I can- Oh, listen. absolutely, can absolutely. Catch up on maybe some past episodes. <laughs> um, and I, well, I will say, so Sarah, we have one more thing in common, which I'll share for either for you or for your listeners, which is I'm, I also host a, po- a podcast. And I host it with my friend Rabbi Jen Gubitz, and it's called the OMFG Podcast, Jewish Wisdom for Unprecedented Times. So it is purposely a little tongue-in-cheek. It is the great rabbinic response to, oh my God, what is happening in this world? And we like to tackle the issues and feelings of the moment. And so uh, the podcast is also available on Spotify and iTunes, and maybe we can trade.
0: Oh, thank you so much. That sounds awesome. So, remember to check out Rabbi Gordon's podcast, <laughs> OMFG, OMFG, and you all have a blessed Shabbat. To learn more about Reformed Judaism and attend social distance-friendly classes, visit www.hevra.org. You can find Rabbi Gordon's podcast, OMFG, on Spotify or wherever you stream your podcasts.